You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. I invite you to turn your scriptures to the book of Joshua again. Joshua chapter 6. We work through this passage. i got to get just centered here. All right, so Joshua 6. We're going to be starting in verse 15 by way of Madeline. Let's bring her picture up. I had two pictures turned in last week. So uh, this was Madeline's picture and Joshua telling them it's in verse. Uh, oh, we'll see it again here today. Oh, what was it? We'll come to it. Um, 10, I think it is. Uh, you shall not shout until the day I tell you to shout. He was telling all of Israel as they were walking around Jericho to shh. Right, Be quiet. The only thing they were to hear would be the, the blare of the trumpets as they went around. And so uh, Madeline caught that. And she's got a question there. 30,000 men? That was maybe a question. How many men are going around the city? We're going to look at that today. So hopefully we'll answer her question there. And I like that. So kids, if you're not drawn, you're taking notes, you just show me that or your pictures. Thanks for doing that. And adults as well, you're always welcome to... to uh, Turn in the drawings of what you're visualizing. And, and this is one of those passages where we, we visualize a lot what God is doing and, and what, where Israel's going. And we're going to try to sort some of that out today, even as we look at this passage again. So we're kind of starting midway then. We've been walking with Israel around the city once a day for the last six days around Jericho at the command of God, commanded to Joshua, eventually commanded to the people to do this every day, six days. And now (coughs) we're at verse 15, and I'll just read through 21 here, this account, and we get to the action of the, the chapter here. So let's read God's word in verse 15. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the sil- all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword." Let me pray again for us. Lord, a display of your might is before us in the words we've just read in your holy scripture. 
So Lord, I come as just a man, and I pray that your word would work in our hearts today, that you would proclaim via this voice, Lord, your greatness and your glory, and our looking to you by faith and walking by faith. So Lord, guide our time by your spirit. I pray you'd work in this time. Again, Lord, as we pray so often, you'd soften our hearts, Lord, where there's a particular area in our life that is not in conformity to what you would have show that. Lord, where we need to see your greatness again, where we need to love you, where we haven't, I pray that you would bring that to light today that we would leave these doors, this place, having been together with your people and in a sense, Lord, communed with you around a table later on. Here, Lord, may we commune with you in your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Today, as we look at this passage, I'm seeking to answer one question out of these verses, 15 through 21. Now, there's other questions that will arise here and hopefully they'll be answered too but and we'll talk about that but here's the main question if there was to be one question of today here's what it is that we want to tackle put in your minds as we look at this passage and it's this question how did the walls of Jericho fall down it's a question of how how did these walls of Jericho that we just read about how did they fall down We just read Joshua commanded the people, right? March around the city. Uh, He's commanded them once for the last six days and now seven times on the seventh day. And his command to them was to shout. To shout, and text tells us, because God's already given the city to them. And we we read that they shouted and the walls, and some of your translations are going to say they fell down flat. Perhaps some of yours say the wall collapsed. And because of this, the people rushed straight up into the city and captured it. But again, how did this happen? Questions will arise here, like, and and we've been talking about some of these in prayer meeting, it wasn't Rahab's house built into the wall. So how did that stay up? And, And what happened with that? How did she survive, right? She was supposed to have her family in her house. If the walls collapsed, what happened? Um... Or if it says the people went up into the city, how did they go up into the city? Or didn't the walls fall flat? So what does that look like And that idea? We're going to look at even an overhead view of Jericho kind of from above and kind of an overview uh, picture in a minute. And it seems like there's an inner wall system and an outer wall system. So you could ask, well, which, which of those walls fell flat? Was it the inside walls, the outer, that sort of thing? We don't have the video of the event. There's no YouTube, is there, of this taking place? Uh, we just have, we just form questions, what it looked like. And I, th- I think there's some helpful archaeological answers. This is not an archaeological course, but we're going to go there a little bit and look at some of that. But even more so, I think Scripture, I think, I know Scripture answers how the walls, how this happened. And it answers it quite clearly and perhaps in a way we would not expect. So that's our question. How did the walls of Jericho fall down? And we begin back in verse 15, just looking back into the chronology of this day 
and the settings. So we want to go there first. Look at verse 15 again. Here's our sevens. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day. They marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. This verse begins with them getting up at the dawn of the seventh day. They didn't sleep in. They weren't slumbering. They were up early, the crack of dawn, if you will, to go do this marching, to be about the Lord's business. Uh, commentator, I've mentioned before, A.W. Pink, he says this. I thought it was just, just to throw it in there. He says, the more unpleasant the task, the sooner should it be tackled and disposed of. He goes on to say, the harder be the duty, the more energetically should it be discharged. What he's saying is the harder it is, get to it. Get going. Get up early. Get it done. I don't think that's all of what this passage is teaching, but I think we can take from that. Get up early. Go do it. Or get that, what we were talking about in Sunday school, get that hard thing done first. If you have a hard task, like marching around a fortress like Jericho, it's to get going. First thing. But what was Jericho like? And up to this point, we've never really not looked into this much, so I'm going to try my handy pointer here. And this is going to not really give you a lot of help, but it's, it'll give you an idea. It's pretty blurry there. But uh, this is kind of a way overview. This is a Google. So any of you, you know, you go here. This is not special Bible software. This is Google. So uh, here's some of the Jordan River. This is nowadays. Here's like modern Jericho. Uh, as you see it here, so Israel crossing the Jordan, so to the west here. This, if you can see this little green dot, that's kind of the area where there's this place called Tel uh, Ace Sultan, something like that. That's where Jericho is at, and here's kind of a view of it. So it's not very big, so it's it's not like Jericho encompassed. I mean, it encompassed the area, but the city itself think is much smaller than maybe you and I think it to be. Here's a picture of it from uh, above. You can get an idea. Here's some of those walls. Here's kind of an, an inner city wall. It's kind of an oblong shape and some outer gate. Uh, by the way, it's, uh, as I read, it's one of the oldest cities in the world or the oldest city, and it's the deepest. It's um, some 860 feet below sea level, so it's Quite a, has quite an interesting history to it, its age and that sort of thing. Um, so my question, study that. Well, how long does it take to go around a city of Jericho? So, you know, I get my trusty notepad, mark off 200 feet, which is right here, and kind of measure from here to here, and it's very scientific, you know, but I come up with around 875 feet from here to here. So then you do the math, circumference, those in math, I had to go back. Let's see, how do you find circumference? It's pi times right, diameter and find out that. Okay, so circumference of 2,700 feet or roughly half a mile. So half a mile walk gets you around Jericho. If you're familiar with a running track, that's twice around the track. If I got that right. Okay, so each day Israel has marched around the city one time going around the city once, half mile. It's it doesn't seem that far. It's not that long. How many people, though? Madeline's question was 30,000. It's way more. It was 600,000 that Numbers talks about men going around the city. So there's a lot of people to go around the city, probably longer than a half mile, just going around. So surrounded by these men marching, going around. And here on the seventh day, 
they do this seven times, which, to do the math, means they marched about uh, three miles uh, or 14 times around the running track. Okay, not 14 times around the city, but that sort of thing. Which might be okay if you didn't have to blow the trumpet, but there's those guys blowing the trumpet the whole time, and that might get long. But they did it. They went around the city. I'll leave this up for you to see there. And they did it in accord with the command of what God told them to do. This was the command of the Lord to Joshua back in verses 2 through 5. And even there's, there's these instances when, when Israel crossed the Jordan, when the circumcision take place, took place, I'm sorry, and now Jericho, God gives his commands as needed for the situation. This was not all laid out in chapter 1. It's as they come to these things, the command of God comes to them. If you look back at verse 10, if you've got your Bibles open, it says, But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. Joshua simply instructs them to march and do it quietly until the day Joshua says to shout. And it would seem, we don't know, it would seem like Joshua didn't tell them what day that's going to be. Perhaps he mentioned it. I don't, I'm not sure from the text, but you could maybe make a case that says they didn't even know. They were marching daily. How long are we doing this for a month? Or how long are we going to do this for? When's this going to end? That sort of thing. They just know, I don't know. Be quiet. When Joshua says shout, we'll shout. Perhaps that was going through their minds. I want to get you zoom in a little bit and get a glimpse and a picture of what this wall looked like. I think this is helpful, again, to do some numbers. Here's an idea of what this wall, kind of a cross-section, would have looked like around Jericho. And you, mentioned, you heard me say the word tell, meaning like a, a mound. And that's many cities in Israel were just built up as mounds. They didn't... <clears throat> you know, be done with one city and move on. It was built and then built upon and built upon, probably because of maybe a water resource or it was a good, safe place. It had good defenses. So why move somewhere? Just build over the old and keep, and it just grows over time kind of to this, this mound. Well, this picture comes from an article in, I looked it up in Answers in Genesis. You're familiar with that ministry of Canaan. He didn't write this. A fellow named Dr. Bryant Wood wrote this. You can look it up and read his article, but there's some interesting things that come out of this, and so I'm just going to read his words. He says, the mound or tell, okay, so it's not tell like spoken, it's the tell uh, of Jericho, was surrounded by a great earthen rampart or embankment with a stone retaining wall at its base. The retaining wall was some 12 to 15 feet high. So Here's the retaining wall right here, 12 to 15 feet high right there. That's what he's talking about, okay? On top of that, you can see on top of that, was a mud brick wall, six feet thick and about 20 to 26 feet high. So this is what he's talking about here. This is 12 to 15. This is, what, six feet wide, 20 to 26 feet high? It's big walls. At the crest, then, of the embankment was a similar mud brick wall whose base was roughly 46 feet above the ground level outside the retaining wall. So he goes up here. There's another wall up here 
the base of this being 46 feet from, you can see the guys here, 46 feet up is here, and then this wall starts. I don't think he gives a height on that wall. He says, this is what loomed high above the Israelites as they marched around the city each day for seven days. Humanly speaking, it was impossible for the Israelites to penetrate the impregnable bastion of Jericho. If you're like me, sometimes I think we think of these walls as just, I think of a castle wall. It's just one wall, maybe 10 feet, you know, or I don't know, walls in the news these days. We're just thinking of one wall, a singular type wall going around. I think this picture is helpful for us to give us a view and an idea of what's, what kind of wall were they looking at. And this is not just an idea. This is things that they've excavated and found out at the place of Jericho, where they're even, I think, currently doing, doing work there. The estimate by Dr. Wood is several thousand people living in this place. Something interesting here, if I can, let's see. If I go back here, now does this kind of make sense? You've got the retaining wall, the outer wall, a sloping up here, and then the middle of the city. So if you go back here, and they don't show it in the picture, but I believe what they're saying is people lived within this part of the wall. So there, people lived on the inner, you know, uh, one place said maybe that's the richer area. The, the, the poor property was out here, you know. I mean, you only got one wall in between you and the enemy. This one, you got double, so it's a pricing difference in real estate. So easier. So thinking probably Rahab probably lived somewhere out in that stretch, if that makes sense, around the city. So that kind of gives you a visual. I'll just leave that up there, a visual of what they're marching around, looking up. I mean... 46 feet in the air with these big stone walls to them. And they've got swords and they've got trumpets, but they don't have bulldozers. How are they going to do this? And so let's look back at the narrative. Look at verse 16. And here's what it says in verse 16 again. Joshua's command. And at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. There's been no sound. There's only been a sound of a trumpet. And then the command comes from Joshua. And the command is to shout. Perhaps it's a war cry type shout or even a shout in triumph, like a shout of victory, um, as if victory has already occurred. That could be one way to interpret this idea of shouting, like shout because you've got the victory. Here's again what Pink says, as they shout... Think of this, if they're shouting for victory before a wall that has not fallen yet, and how odd that might be. Here's what he says. He says, easy enough to shout after the victory, but this was to be given in assured anticipation of the same. Does that make sense? Easy enough to shout when the walls have fallen down, hey, it's a victory. How much different to they are there and they're big and they're tall and we're shouting they were shouting for victory, uh, and they're still before them. The text answers why they could anticipate the victory. It's shout for, or here's the why, or because. For the Lord has given you the city. Again, it's that same verbal I think we looked at last week. It's as good as done. The city is yours. It's finished. I've it's already in a past tense. It's been given. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve this city. 
In fact, it's the, their own wickedness and sin of the people of these cities where they're going that has led to this. I want to look at that a little bit as we go in then to verses, I'll just read 17 through 19. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. So this is Joshua. The walls have not come down yet. He's still, he's saying shout, giving some instruction yet, just a little bit more, and then we're going to, okay? So verse 17, uh, halfway through, only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Verse 18, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. There's a call here, devote this place to destruction. Don't take it for yourselves. In thinking about these cities and what had gone on and why this destruction, here's what Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 18 says as, as Israel prepared to go in, as Moses spoke to them through the Lord. He says, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. So he, the, the command is before Israel ever entered this land was to devote them to destruction. I think Joshua, maybe here, he's just reminding them of this. And verse 18 of Deuteronomy 20 says, that they may not teach you to do according to, their, to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Don't take part in their abominable practices, the wickedness of the nations you're overtaking. It's their wickedness. Remember, it's not Israel. It's not your righteousness. It's the wickedness. It's the sin of the nations. I'm bringing judgment upon them. So what were some of those detestable practices? Deuteronomy 12.31 answers, says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for Every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, thinking of the people of this land. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. One resource that I saw lays it out this way in terms of what kind of wickedness, what had they done? It says this, the, prohib- the prohibited aspects of Canaanite religion would have included the use of idols to manipulate the deity. So there's idolatry. Uh, Fertility practices, perhaps including ritual sex with temple prostitutes. There's all sorts of perversion. Child sacrifice. Divination, that's like like fortune-telling, horoscope. Divination and appeasement rituals. The wickedness of the people they're going in. Now, we're not. We're answering our question, how did the walls fall down? So next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at why all the destruction and was God just in this destruction? I mean, as you read it, there is destruction of young and old alike. They're burning the city. And so we want to look at that, but take a little more time with it and get to that uh, 
next time as we look at at those things. And so for now, we're just going to go to verse 20 and see the follow-through. There's kind of this command. Joshua says, shout, the Lord's giving you the city, and then he lays out, devoted to destruction. Then we're going to see the people act in verse 20 and 21, act on this command, and here's where the action really begins. God commands Joshua. He commands the people. They march the seven times. And then verse 20, here it is. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Hebrew here reads something like the wall fell under itself. We see God at work here. Most most versions, like I said, say it fell down flat. There's the idea of it falling down underneath, beneath itself. So here, finally, let's get to the answer of our question, how did the walls of Jericho fall down? I'm going to give you a brief physical type answer to see what they found here and then move to Scripture, okay? So don't leave me yet. Uh, Just looking archaeologically at this and then we want to look at Scripture. So looking again, we've got the side view of our city up there that you're looking at. Here's, Here's what Dr. Bryant Wood says. How does this wall fall? What kind of falling took place here just to help our minds? And it's pretty neat that through archaeology we can seek to understand some of these things. Here's what he says. It turns out that there is ample evidence that the mud brick city wall collapsed and was deposited at the base of the stone retaining wall at the time the city met its end. And then he talks about this Kathleen Kenyon from the 1950s, an archaeologist, there we go, uh, that was working there. And you can look up some of her things. Um, She's did some detailed work. She got the dating wrong, and that kind of brought out some things. If Dr. Wood would say, no, the dating is correct in terms of when Joshua took place, that sort of thing. But he says Kenyon's work was the most detailed. On the west side of the tell, okay, now you've got archaeological language in you, the tell, we know what that is, that's the mound. On the west side of the tell, at the base of the retaining or revetment wall, she found fallen red bricks piling nearly to the top of the revetment These probably came from the wall on the summit of the bank and or the brickwork above the revetment. Okay, does that make any sense what she's saying here? That this wall fell down or fell underneath itself. And as it fell, and this one perhaps too, but as it fell, where did all the material from its falling go? It went right here to this retaining wall place creating what they say is a natural ramp right there for Israel to go up into the city. Just walk right on up, and here we are. So they found these bricks at the bottom. And again, here's what Wood says. Excavations have shown that the bricks from the collapsed walls formed a ramp against the retaining wall so that the Israelites could merely climb up and 
over the top. So when it says they went up, well, they did. They went right up into it, and they went up there. Okay, I want to show you another picture here. I have it. There it is. This is a little older picture of the city, but this gives you another idea. You've got the inner, outer, and here's the debris. And perhaps kind of looking, here's some of the houses that we talked about maybe in that, that inner or the, the poor district, you might say, and with the rubble down below. That gives you an idea. And so archaeologic, archaeologically, we see this taking place, see what could have happened. They went from the ground level to the base. Now, just one little side note. I think it's the German archaeologist. I'm having a hard word time with that word today. So maybe I should find another word. Uh, but they found somewhere in here, I think it was the north side, where there is part of this wall that was left, just one part where it didn't fall, at least that wall. Um, what place would that have been? Thinking of Rahab, yeah. Pretty interesting. So even down to Rahab, you know, there's, there's uh, some proof, some evidence here of what took place. Okay. But this tells us, that's fascinating. I hope you're learning something. And I hope through this, even just this side, we're looking at physically, trying to say archaeology and all that sort of thing, that you're seeing that the Bible is, is true. We can trust what's there. Sometimes there's things we still don't know, we still don't understand, or what's the timing, or how is this? But sometimes it just takes time. I mean, think of that. We're in the 1950s, you know, where they're discovering these things and looking these things up. But we can trust the Scriptures. And so hopefully that bolsters your faith. We don't come again upon the Scriptures and say, okay, now I believe it's true. No, it's true whether you believe it or not. But we can say there's evidence for our belief that this really happened. And you can go over and and go tour Israel and see this place. But again, this only tells us what happened to the walls physically, how they fell down physically. There is something far more important than the inner, the outer, and the red bricks and that sort of thing and how this took place. And that answer leads us to the book of Hebrews. And so I want you to go there as we look at the book of Hebrews just a little bit to chapter 11, verse 30. So if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, we're asking again the question, how did the walls of Jericho fall down? And we come to verse 30 in Hebrews, this whole chapter dealing with the subject of faith. You remember this chapter 11, the faith chapter being assured of things hoped for, convicted of things not seen. All of it's focused on God, that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And over and over, over, and over again, people, they're commended for their faith. And, as, and then we get to verse 30, and here we find our answer. Hebrews 11.30, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. How did the walls fall down? It didn't take archaeologists. We got it right in Hebrews. They fell down by faith. Now we know who, who caused them to fall. God did. We know that clearly. Shout for what? The Lord has given you the city. God is at work in this. We know who did it. He gave the victory. Hebrews tells us, by faith, 
the walls came down. And it seems like, I've probably mentioned this before, over and over, we hear people, especially maybe it's at election time or people that want to sound religious, talk about, I have faith, right? I, if you want to know where they stand, so what do you think about God? What do you, I have faith. And so we, we want to, that's, that's it's true faith, but who is it in? We want to be careful to define the faith of Israel and our own faith. What, what is faith? By faith, the walls fell down. I think it's, it's two things. Faith has an object. That is, faith is towards something, in something, and faith does something. It has an object and it does something. And so just briefly, these two, faith has an object. The object of our faith is what matters. I can have faith in an orange, but the orange will not save me. The faith of Israel was in their God. He's all around this city. Yahweh had gone before them with the trumpet call. They're surrounded. The presence in that ark we talked about, the presence going around. He was with them. He was with His people. And the people shouted, for God had given the city. Their faith was not just a faith. It was faith in Yahweh, in God. But then interestingly here, faith was not for Israel and for us, not simply a mental state of mind. Not simply just something, a state of mind. A sort of, yes, I believe in God, and yet there's no accompanying action. So their faith, the faith of Israel in their God, shows up by them marching the six times around the city, marching seven times on the seventh day. They shout when Joshua said to shout. There's action to it. I want to show a quote for you up here from Pink so that you can hear it and read it. And sometimes that helps as I quote these things. And here's what he said. And I think there's really helpful as we think about faith in this instance of Israel. It is a very serious mistake to suppose that faith is restricted to a resting upon God's promises. Now, he's not saying faith is not. There are times faith rests. We rest on the promises of God. Don't hear him say don't rest on those. He's saying it's not restricted to that alone. Let me keep going. It is equally to be exercised in complying with his precepts, what he's said to do. Trusting God is only one part of faith's work. It is far too little recognized that conforming to God's revealed will is also required of faith. Faith always has to do with God. He is its object and His Word is its rule and regulator. So the object of our faith is God and His rule is the rule and regulator of it. His Word, the Word that we have. You hear what he's saying? Faith trusts God and faith obeys God. These findings of the archaeologists, they're helpful. They give us an idea of the city, how big the walls were. Oops, I'll go back to there. Or how they might have fallen, but we don't want to miss what really happened at Jericho. The people of Israel had faith in their God. It was a faith that led them to do whatever God commanded them to do. 
we're seeing that, at least here. This is a bright moment for Israel. It doesn't stay this way, but a bright moment for them. They march six days. They march seven times. They shout before the walls. It takes faith to obey what God has spoken. Because His ways often, I think, seem contrary to our natural minds. But there's hope for us that Jesus Himself is working this same faith in us as Hebrews, the very next chapter, tells us about Him. Look at just, if you're in Hebrews 11.30, just go right to 12.1. This is right on the heels of this. All these people of faith, what about my faith? What am I doing? What's happening? Here's the hope, dear Christian. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is this saying? It's saying to us, devote to destruction, you, believer, all within your walls. Lay aside your sin. Run with endurance. Run the race of faith. How? By looking to Jesus. The founder of it. He's the object. We look to Him. And He's the perfecter of it. Your walls will look different day by day. Walls that God's asking you to obey, to conquer. As one wall drops, you move forward. Other walls arise by which we still must exercise faith working itself out by obedience. And so we demonstrate our faith and our trust in God by obeying what God has spoken just as Israel did. One more helpful passage. It's in the area, in the neighborhood. Just head to the right to 1 John 5. And I'll just really close with this passage. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. It's faith. How does this work? And Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith. What good news for us. And then chapter 5 of 1 John says this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. If you believe, you have been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We have the same hope that Israel had. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Just faith that's alone by itself? No. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The object of our faith always comes back to Jesus, who we look to and we trust in. And then we say, You're my Lord and my Master to whom every knee will one day bow. We say, what do you want me to do? You want me to go there? I will do that. His words make clear what we're to do. 
We have to wonder and say, speak to me. I mean, there's, there's times we pray, Lord, do I this or this? And it's not a sinful choice, that sort of thing. But we look to His Word and look to Jesus as the object of our faith. Our faith begins with Jesus. It's sustained by Him. And it's perfected by Him. What great hope we have in our Savior. So we're going to come to the table today. Celebrate communion together and celebrate this Savior, this author and perfecter of our faith. We celebrate Jesus who came as a baby and lived a sinless and perfect life. And He was the sufficient sacrifice for our sins, for our failings. So if we come up short here, as we come to the table, maybe you come in here today and feel... I've come up short. I've broken God's laws. I've been against Him this week. He says to love Him. I don't know. All those sorts of things. We come back to Him. We come back to this table. Not that this, but the remembrance of this. Who this represents. Jesus. The bread of life that can nourish our weary souls. We're not putting our faith in our faith or in our works, or anything of ourselves, we want to rest solely on Jesus. His blood, which was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. The ransom to purchase us back to God. And it's all centered back on Jesus. Again, John, 1 John 5, 4-5. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. There's, there's hope here, Christian. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We have a great Savior to celebrate at this table. Again, our obedience here, don't hear me saying it's a work to merit our salvation. God did alone. Jesus did the work on the cross. Simply receive, we believe. And if you believe, as I said, past tense, you've been born of God. He's given you eyes to see Christ. But that birth lives it out, lives out in us as lives as we're obedient to Him. We look to our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ.